Welcome to Aircrew Interview. I'm Mike and your host. On this podcast, we chat with Brian Withers, MBE and AFC, about his time flying the Shackleton and Nimrod in the Maritime Patrol role. So if you like what we do here, head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrew interview to help us out for as little as $1 per month. You can also visit us at aircrewinterview.tv to give a direct donation because, as you know, every bit does help us to keep this channel going. Thank you and enjoy. So, Brian, when did you become interested in aviation? Well, I think as, uh, as long ago as I can remember, actually, because my father was a pilot in the, uh, in the Second World War, and I, from being a toddler, I knew that he'd done that, and, of course, it's sort of natural to, to want to find out more about it and also probably to emulate him, as I always thought I probably would, yeah. and indeed did. So what year did you join the RAF? I joined the RAF in 1965, direct entry commission through South Cerny so I spent 16 weeks at South Cerny and then I already had a flying scholarship with the Air Training Corps and so I went straight through to flying the Jet Provost at Basic Flying School just down the road from here at uh, Syaston. Could you talk us through some of your basic training and what aircraft you actually flew? Yeah well as I said I started off on the, uh, the Jet Provost it was the all jet, all through jet training period of the Royal Air Force, so it was uh, just under a year at Syaston flying the JP-3, and then when you, you became the senior course, the JP-4. Um, I was six foot five. Well, I am six foot five. Would be a better way of putting it. But uh, uh, so I had to be measured before they would accept me as a pilot. I went to Cranwell for a day where they measured me. Uh, sitting down, standing up, or, and uh, eventually they cleared me to fly the JP. But sadly, they explained that the NAT, being the uh, the advanced trainer at the time, I would never fly fast jets, whether I was good enough or not, because I basically couldn't fit into the thing. And so, after passing out, getting my wings at Syastern in '66, I went down to Oakington, five FTS, and flew the Varsity. Uh, for six months doing my twin engine conversion and of course that's when I got acquainted with piston engines again uh, straight through from there to St Morgan and the uh, Maritime Operational Training Unit on the Shackleton I was very lucky in that unlike some pilots of that era I went uh, virtually straight from one posting to another and didn't have to hold anywhere Yes, big, old, noisy. I think noisy more than anything else. Um, And it got a tailwheel, which I'd only ever flown in a tailwheel aircraft once, which was an old Oster at uh, what was then the Beagle factory at Rearsby. So the three-point attitude for landing and and also, of course, having uh, ten extra crew, well, nine other crew members with you was quite an experience. But the QFIs were very good. They were all, a lot of them were... World War Two or just after World War Two coastal experts and so basically you soon settle down and realize that it's um, a bit heavy to fly uh, a bit noisy but very good at what it did you know which was drone along over the sea at low level for hours on end basically. So how much ground school did you receive? I think we did about three weeks before we actually were allowed to get airborne at all just learning the basic systems of the aircraft and then we interspersed ground school with flying for the conversion phase. There are two phases to the course. The 
the conversion phase for the pilots and air engineers and then the applied phase where you joined up with the rear crew members who'd been studying their equipment in the in the meantime i think it was something like 30 no 16 conversion sorties then about 12 applied sorties in a period of six months was the was the course in total yeah so can you tell us about your first flight in the shackleton uh I know the QFI was Jim Cooper, I can remember that. Um, and we went off and did about two hours familiarisation around St Morgan. And I'm not sure if we didn't do the the max crit speed run, which is when they, you throttle two engines back on one side and you hold the rudder and slow down until finally you, it won't fly anymore. And that's, that was the minimum speed that you were ever allowed to go in the aeroplane. To avoid an accident, I, I think that may have been done at that early stage. Or, but because after that we went into the circuit and pounded the circuit for quite a long time, getting used to trying to land a uh, well, a grandson of a Lancaster with big Lincoln-type tyres and no brakes. Yeah. Well, could you tell us um, some of the training sorties you actually did? Well, as I say, yeah, the conversion phase, um, you would just pound the circuit, do instrument approaches, get your instrument rating, and then after that you would be signed up as first pilot on the aeroplane day and night which was different to a lot of commands where the co-pilot the, well, the future co-pilots would uh, be definitely right hand seat we, we were trained first pilot day and night from the square one and then we went off with the crew with the applied sorties and we didn't have a QFI with us we had a, what they called an MAI, a maritime air instructor who was a very experienced pilot but not necessarily there to teach the pilots uh, to fly the aeroplane but how to use the aeroplane because really, in a maritime aircraft, it's 90% using the aeroplane and 10% taking off and landing, you know. Yeah. And we flew with our student crew and did practice tactics using radar boys to simulate submarines. We would fly against skid targets towed by a launch and practice bombing a uh, moving target. And the navigators would practice their uh, plotting tactics uh, for investigating surface contacts in an area, things like that. All very much maritime orientated and uh, eventually you will be given an exercise scenario where you went to an area and you didn't know what to expect and you, the crew had to work it out with the minimum inputs of the best thing to do and uh, to achieve the, the aim of the sortie which was basically your final handling test if you like yeah. but then we all split up and went to different squadrons and crews so you, although we had sort of crew uh, cooperation drilled into us we didn't actually exit as a crew we exited as individuals to various squadrons and joined established crews so talking about the crews how many crew uh, crews were on board uh, the shackleton normally crew was 10 two pilots two navigators an air engineer and then five what they called signalers at uh, the start of my time then they all became air electronics operators they'd be called wizos these days but it shows how the air force moves on normally one of those was an officer and the other four were senior ncos so obviously the pilots flew the airplane the navigators navigated uh, the air engineer i don't know what the air engineer did really apart from write down the fuel every hour and tell the nav we, we hadn't run out uh no that's that's been a bit to our engineers they're very very nice chaps yeah. um, but the rear crew I mean you're starting at the front they, they, they were practiced in gunnery wireless operator which was the old Morse HF radio back to base very important that we kept in contact and then we had uh, 
sonar, radar, beam lookouts, um, photography, tail lookout. So, oh, and galley, of course, the most important sensor on the aeroplane, the galley, where you kept it, all the uh, people happy. <laughs> and so uh, they were jack of all trades and probably master of most, actually. Flying the aircraft wasn't just flying the aircraft. It was putting the aircraft in the right position at the right time, if you like, particularly in tactical situations. Because the navigator had no uh, screen where he knew uh, what was going on in the, in the sense of a digital type setup it was all mandrolic and so we would be left to position the aircraft to be ready to do what we anticipated the next tactic would be and also to fly as accurately as possible uh, when they're doing astro navigation of course with uh, which is something doesn't happen these days plus we were experts at telling what the surface wind was by just looking out the window and we would help the nav out by giving updates on the wind if it looks like it changed to help his problem because you've got to realize in those days, it, the uh, nav system was a pencil and a ruler, basically. Yeah. So, could you tell us what squadrons you were based with? On the Shackleton, uh, just 42 squadron. I did four years and a little bit on 42 squadron prior to Nimrod conversion. Um, the start of my career was a bit uh, protracted because we were frozen in post, uh, pending the Nimrod coming into service. And, in fact, we were one of the last UK squadrons to convert on 42 um, I think it was the beginning of 72, something April 72, we finally got to the, uh, the Nimrod OCU. So I spent quite a lot longer than a co-pilot than I particularly wanted, but in that time I had got a, a Master Green Instrument rating, which is the best you could get in those days, plus I'd also got a, um, a personal category which was above average. So, you know, I was trying to do the best I could, but I never ever became a, co-pilot, uh, a captain on Shackleton's for that reason. There were a lot more experienced people who were all frozen in post until the Nimrod came in. Yeah. Where was this squadron based at? It was St Morgan in Cornwall, which is now Newquay Airport, of course. Um, but we had a sort of secondary operating base of Gibraltar because we were one of the southern Shackleton squadrons, so we spent quite a time detaching to Gibraltar if there was any interesting uh, activity, either entering or leaving the Mediterranean. So did anything interesting happen to you while you were on the squadron? Oh, yes. Uh, I mean, obviously, with uh, never knowing what you're going to come across when you when you get airborne, it, um, we had several incidents. Um, one that springs to mind is we were um, operating out of the Mediterranean, actually, down off Cyprus. Um, our task was to detect and, uh, and track a Soviet um, surveillance ship hydrographic survey vessel and uh, we were flying down very near the 12 mile limit off Egypt when all of a sudden a MiG-21 came whistling by the right wing tip which we thought was quite interesting and as it wasn't maintaining height so we turned north and it came by again and it was descending towards the water and there was an interesting conversation between myself and the captain as to whether we ought to put out a mayday relay if he fell in the water but uh, it was... uh, all totally legal and above board, but they just came to have a look at us, which was quite unusual at 500 feet um, for a, a jet to intercept you like that. Yeah. There are several other things on, on search and rescue. I mean, for instance, I took off uh, once from St Morgan and the nose wheel wouldn't retract, but we had to deliver drugs to a, a trawler, so we flew all the way out with the nose wheel down at reduced speed, dropped the drugs to the, the Navy ship whose doctor was going to help the seaman on the trawler, and then we flew back with the nose wheel down and landed again. Wow. Or 
uh, SNR again over the channel. Um, we were trying to help a lifeboat that a, a ship had run into a, the wreck of a, a, a ship that had sunk the previous week, and the Dover lifeboat was out. And they asked us to drop flares. Well, we used to carry a fourth, um, what we called a four and a half inch recce flare in the Bombay. So we climbed up to 4,000 feet to drop it because it was a parachute type flare. But then we had to clear the area on radar to drop the flare because obviously you don't want to hit a ship, particularly if the parachute doesn't open. It's just an, what they call an incendiary bomb then. Um, and there were tankers and all sorts, and the radar was struggling like mad to find us a clear path. And eventually we were dropping flares with sort of close your eyes and press the button and hope for the best because the poor old uh, lifeboat was wanting help and we were not allowed to give it. But then he got his own back because we came hurtling down to 500 feet, said, can we fire a flare ourselves? And we said, certainly. So we climbed up to 1,000, which we were briefed was the, the safety height in those days for rocket flares from lifeboats, when this flare burst above us. And we thought... That's interesting, and they apparently they got a new rocket flare which went up to 1,200 feet, and nobody had bothered to tell Coastal Command. So there we are. That was a fairly interesting trip. It is interesting, oh. yeah. <laughs> so do you think the Shackleton was the right aircraft for the job at the time? Oh, yes, I think definitely it was the right aircraft for the job. It was uh, an aircraft the rest of the Air Force didn't understand, but it, was, uh, it could go out, stay a long time. The only problem was it was very noisy, and towards the end of its life, it did have operational limitations because it didn't have a long-range passive sonar system. Um, the LOFAR Jezebel system was available in P3s and would come into service in the Nimrod. So really, the reason the Shackleton left service because it wasn't up to the job, but that was because the Russians sneakily started building nuclear submarines like they were going out of fashion. <laughs> <laughs> what was the longest sortie you ever carried out? Oh, I'm a wimp because I joined late. This aircraft became quite heavy. I mean, when it was built, so the Mark III could do 24 hours. Uh, when I flew them, I reckon you would be pushed to get 15, 18 hours on military reserves. And to answer your question directly, 12 hours 25 was the longest I've ever done, which is probably quite short. If any uh, Shackleton people watch this, they'll probably say, what a wimp, you know. <laughs> That's long to me. <laughs> Just depends if the... Uh, the galley's working and the arson doesn't get full. <laughs> so how did um, other forces and um, nations view the Shackleton, giving its age? Well, I think, yeah, they... Um, I think we got a very good reputation in, in anti-submarine warfare, which was its primary war role, of course. And uh, we were very much on a par with the early P3s, apart from the lack of this, the, the Jezebel uh, sonar system. But we held our own in all sorts of exercises. And, and, you know, at the Shackleton period, things like the Portuguese were fly, still flying Neptunes, which were uh, even older. And the Dutch had... Uh, well, the Dutch had Neptunes, yeah. The Norwegians, they had P3s eventually. But we were very much... Uh, as I say, even at the end of its life, which is the only time I really knew the Shackleton, it was very much up with the, the, the going... Uh, expertise mainly because of the crews were so experienced you know i mean they, a lot of guys from back from wartime period i was a, a young co-pilot i was learning amazing things and, and listening to the exploits of warrant officer 50 year old warrant officers who we were flying down to um to gibraltar once we got to cape finisterre and they one of our signalers came up stood between the pilots and he says is that cape finisterre lighthouse down there and i said certainly is and he said oh i ditched in a wellington 
just near there in 1943. So, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, how many hours did you get on Shackleton's and did you enjoy it? Just short of 2,000 uh, hours in total. And, yeah, by and large, yes. There were odd times when the weather would make it... Uh, not so enjoyable because obviously we operated at low level quite a lot so it'd be quite bumpy uh, particularly search and rescue if it was your turn to do the landing um, and you had a, a dark and dirty night you know with a strong crosswind sometimes you thought you know is, yeah. is, is this what I ought to be doing but it, by and large it was uh, very good and, and of course we had excellent crews and we got on very well we did everything we were what we call constituted crews and we did everything together and we became firm friends i'm still in touch with the guy that used to be our rations man back in uh, 1968 so brian then you move on to nimrod when did this happen um well at the time the nimrod was being introduced into the raf so we did squadron conversion i actually Although we were nominally still on 42 Squadron, we started the Nimrod conversion course at the end of 1971, and it was a three-month course going through until about April 72, when, as if by magic, we became number 203 Squadron and went out to Malta to replace the Shackletons that had been there before. And so we were, as a crew, we, we from a... Uh, the Shackleton crew, we became a Nimrod crew, and this time we did stay together. And so the pilots were still reading the pilots' notes as we were flying down to Malta, thinking, you know, have we got to landing yet? How do you... <laughs> no, it's not, not quite that bad. But, I mean, quite interesting that a brand-new jet, that um, the pilots have probably got something of the order of 100 hours each on it, and uh, we were sent off on our own to take it out to Malta. Yeah. So we did, uh, I think it was nine conversion sorties, similar system to the Shackleton, nine conversion sorties orientated towards the pilots uh, circuit flying, instrument flying, culminating in instrument rating and then I think it was 12 applied sorties where you would learn to use the new uh, displays basically the, the, the sensors were virtually the same as the Mark III Shackleton the radar was the same, the sonar was the same uh, we had the addition of the, the LOFAR Jezebel system we've talked about already long-range passive sonar so we could we could hunt nuclears this time as well so a little bit more tactics involved but of course for a worked up crew it was quite a lot easier than doing it from basics as we did uh, on the six-month course some years earlier so how different was it compared to the shackleton well the biggest difference i think is will become apparent uh, if you ever go in a shackleton uh, is that in a nimrod you can get in the door at the back and you can walk all the way to the front and it doesn't, uh, there's nothing to climb over, which was a major advantage. Plus they said that all the, all the uh, equipment will be stowed on board, so you won't have to carry out a busload of bags and, and uh, reference material and things. It turned out to be a, a lie, but it was a good idea at the time. But from a pilot's point of view, the main thing was it, it could climb. I mean, a Shackleton, we would go off, and if you got up to 2,000 feet... Uh, that was pretty high, you know. Um, with the Nimrod, it was very much airliner performance, and you could cruise up to 30,000 feet, descend into your area. We used to Our areas were blocked from 20,000 feet and below normally. So we had much more tactical freedom. We could get to places, and we had better sensors. So all round, much better anti-submarine warfare platform. Mm. Was there a big difference in the cockpit layout? Oh yes, quite a bit. Uh, the Shackleton is uh, get, 
can take its history back to the Lancaster via the Lincoln, whereas the uh, Nimrod was based on an airliner, the Comet 4. So you have uh, a Comet-type flight deck with... Uh, you still have an air engineer, and he's on the flight deck with you, but... Uh, you have a centre console with the throttles, the autopilot, flight directors, all that sort of thing. Very similar to airliners right up to today, but uh, not quite sophisticated, uh, as sophisticated an instrument system. But, uh, yeah, much uh, cleaner, nicer, and they, the three of you sat together rather than uh, the pilot being up in the cockpit and uh, there's a, a walkway between to get to the bomb aimers position in the Shackleton, things like that. So mm-hmm. it was pretty atypical as a, as a four-engine a large aeroplane. Yeah. So did the Nimrod have the same role as the Shackleton? Yes, exactly. Um, anti-submarine warfare was its primary role, but of course maritime surveillance of all sorts, uh, and all this, the uh, the Cold War tasks that would come up, uh, and in peacetime, search and rescue was a big uh, big role. We had uh, two aircraft on standby, 24 hours seven days a week uh, in case of any emergency at sea um, initially the Nimrod couldn't drop the survival gear that the Shackleton did uh, so a squadron of Shackletons were kept on at Honington actually oh, wow. uh, designated 204 squadron purely for search and rescue oh, okay. well, the problem was the Lindholm gear was uh, 140 feet 140 knots were the dropping parameters for a Shackleton whereas a Nimrod couldn't do 140 knots <laughs> so they uh, eventually they modified the the Lindholm gear so that it could be dropped at 300 feet 200 knots which meant it was within the flight envelope of the Nimrod so it was soon sorted out but it was just a little anomaly when the the Nimrod came into service and how many crew did it have? Uh, 12 normally on the Nimrod two pilots two navigators again an air engineer and then seven guys down the back because they were split now into wet and dry as it were that's what we used to call them they were acoustics Operators, the wet men, and, and um, radar, ESM, and radio men that were the the dry men, as it, as we called them. So it was the first time that everybody didn't do everything. You know, the AO was uh, once again in charge of the of the two shifts. Of, so he had basically three three wet men and three dry men to play with. And the AO himself would dabble with most things, and he had a seat called the Martel seat by the nav, so he could act as a coordinator and see the tactical situation when when uh, things were developing, you know. Yeah. Whereas the pilots didn't, of course. We still had to uh, work it all out on the back of a TAP, a terminal approach chart. We used to have stick it up in the front and draw pictures on it, just because we never did get a tactical display in my time at yeah. the front, so you knew what was going on. So, what squadrons were you based with uh, on the Nimrod? Well, the Nimrod initially, as I've already said, 203 squadron went out to Malta for three and a half years. Then, strangely enough, I got a T uh, cat, as we called it, a, t- a training category in maritime operations. So, my next tour was as a simulator instructor, because once a, you know the Nimrod was owned, had only been in service about five years, so the experienced people were few and far between. It's not something I wanted to do, but I did it. And then I went on to 120 Squadron at Kinloss, so uh, I became a captain on there. Till I found the tunnel later on at uh, 1980, I went down to 51 Squadron. Uh, at Witten on the Nimrod R1 and that, uh, you know, I stayed there for the rest of my career basically, either on the squadron or associated with the squadron's activities, uh, tasking them latterly. Do you have any memorable stories from the time on the Nimrod? Uh, I can remember once we were uh, flying into Akrotiri 
um, in Cyprus that is and it was the time that the Turkish and, and Greeks were having a little uh, uh, confrontation between themselves and the Turks invaded northern Cyprus uh, we were just turning finals onto Akrotiri when the ESM came up and said fire control lock on and he was a young sergeant and immediately the warrant officer just uh, said expletive expletive that's the PAR the precision approach radar so uh, we weren't being locked onto at all but that, <laughs> it, it, it concentrated people's minds to start with and then I did one of the longer Nimrod sorties I've ever done um, I think it was the uh, the Greek phantoms sank a Greek destroyer off Akrotiri which was very much uh, blue on blue and we, we flew out of Akrotiri um, as a neutral observer doing search and rescue trying to locate and, re- and organise rescues for the, for the crewmen that were in the sea which uh, was another interesting time uh, there are lots of things uh, that seem out of the ordinary to us but probably you know, to your viewers would not seem that unusual but one day we were actually out it was the 24th of December as it always was when something happened and we were, we were tasked to go out and find this Russian ship that was transiting to the west of Ireland and so we duly went down, found it took some pictures of it and by then it was sort of uh, we made our way back it was probably something like 2 o'clock on Christmas morning and we called up to Scottish Radar to get a clearance up to high level transit back and you know the normal call Scottish mill this is us we would like to climb up to flight level 310 go home and um, they they said direct Kinloss and we said yes if possible they said anything's possible you're the only aircraft on our radar (laughs) (laughs) so did you ever fly in large exercises yeah a lot of the time we would uh, participate in from Kinloss, the NATO exercises. Uh, um, I'm trying to think what it was called. Dawn Patrol, would it be, possibly? Or was that Mediterranean? I, I'm afraid at this length of time afterwards. They, but, yeah, all major uh, NATO exercises involving maritime uh, presence, we would participate because, obviously, we were a part of the NATO uh, defence system for the North Atlantic, all part of SACLANT, as he was known, Senior Allied Commander Atlantic. And uh, we were... in. Um, we did the Eastland bit and the Americans did the Westland bit and in the Mediterranean similarly we were half our squadron was actually assigned to CENTO in the the old Central Treaty Organisation and we had responsibilities down into the Indian Ocean from there as well as our NATO responsibilities um, towards the the NATO shipping in the the Mediterranean guarding the, the, the American fleet that was normally floating around there somewhere So Brian, did you fly in the Gulf War? The first Gulf War, yes, I was. I mean, we jumped forward quite a bit in time. Um, we're now talking about 51 Squadron, the Nimrod R1. I was the flight commander ops on the squadron during the uh, first Gulf War and organised a deployment. And then we flew uh, mainly from out of theatre, from Cyprus, uh, doing surveillance missions along the Iraqi border, basically. I think that's probably uh, no great secret. Uh, but aspects of what we did I'm afraid are something I can't really talk about uh, even this, to this day but certainly we contributed quite a lot to uh, taking down the uh, Iraqi air defence system along with our friends in the rivet joints from uh, the USAF and also we did 
surveillance missions in the Mediterranean in the build-up to the war to ensure that there weren't any terrorist, uh, unforeseen terrorist activities, etc., uh, to threaten our base in Cyprus and threaten the major supply chain going through Egypt to out to uh, Saudi. So, how many hours on Nimrod did you get, and did you enjoy flying it? Uh, overall, I flew the MR1 and the R1, and something like 7,000 hours in the end, just over 7,000 hours, of which 5,000 were on 51 Squadron, so you can see I was there for an extended period. Um, but yes, it was uh, what we used to say was we get bored in interesting places on 51. Uh, the autopilot did most of the work, as you probably gather. <laughs> So, Brian, do you have any hobbies? Yeah, uh, well, lots, actually. Bird watching is one of my main hobbies from dating back 50, 60 years now. Um, but recently, uh, I've been... Since I retired, I've been concentrating on flight simulators, uh, PC-type-based flight simulators, particularly Microsoft's uh, series of flight simulators up till FS10 that they're using at the moment. I been writing software but now I tend not to do this because it's getting a bit more complicated I uh, I tend now to be a beta tester for other people's software rather than writing my own um, that and traveling of course we've uh, we've got children living in Florida so well uh, children and grandchildren living in Florida so we uh, we go over there most years to have an extended holiday with them because otherwise my wife wouldn't see her granddaughters yeah. Do you have a favourite tipple? Uh, depends. Gin and tonic, anywhere in the world. But in Scotland, Dura, the Isle of Dura whisky. Uh, I think that sums that up. <laughs> Which did you prefer to fly, the Shackleton or Nimrod? Oh, dear. That's very hard. <laughs> I think you've got to say Nimrod. Um, but the Shackleton at low level, because of the way you, uh, the gunner's position is uh, sticks out in front of you, you've got a good visual reference you can actually manoeuvre the Shackleton much more easily at a low level than Nimrod even though it's manual controls it's very progressive uh, and so most fun I think is a Shackleton at low level with lots of power on you didn't go very fast but you could turn quite well Is there an aircraft you wish you could have flown? I'm not really uh, thought about that all that much although the only one that's really um, impressed me when we were operational with them is the Buccaneer so I think Buccaneer S2 is probably something I would have loved to have a go at but of course probably too big to fit in it so that's uh, I did once fly in the back seat of a tornado but that's quite big but it's uh, not the same uh, sort of being in the navigator's seat is not really what a pilot wants to be you know? <laughs> and finally do you ever get sick of talking about aviation um, not really, but perhaps at the end of a long day here when I've been asked the same question about 50 times about the Shackleton, my patience is becoming a bit thin. But if you ask my wife, she'll say, I wish, you know, because I tend, I think, to, to watch it on the television and talk about it quite a lot. Well, Brian, thanks very much for being on the show. Pleasure. Thanks very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you like what we do here, don't forget to head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to help us out for as little as $1 per month. Thank you and see you soon.